think you, um, you guys did a great job just uh, drawing attention to those situations uh, in our everyday life that, that perhaps where we lack peace. And I just want to uh, read to you John 20 verses 19 to 22 tonight. This is the um, evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead. On the Sunday morning, Jesus rose. So this uh, is uh, the evening, that Sunday night. And it says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a room of fear. It's a room of anxiety. These disciples and others had seen their hero brutally murdered. There was probably a degree of confusion, I'd imagine, because some of them had seen the empty tomb um, and others were relying on their testimony. And there was clearly much fear in the room and, and probably a lack of faith because the room was locked for fear of the Jews. And I wonder tonight, does that room sound familiar to you tonight? It certainly does to me. That room of fear, that fear of the unknown, that worry, that anxiety, that not knowing quite what's coming next. And the question that they must have been asking themselves was, where has our dear Saviour gone and how will we ever know peace again? And that's a question I think we ask ourselves a lot, whether we are aware of it or not. But what is peace and, and what robs us of peace? Well, I think if uh, we look at Jesus' teachings, there are two clear attitudes in the Bible that rob us of peace. The first one, and I, I count myself first, I speak to myself first among all of us uh, here tonight, as I mentioned these. The first one is being judgmental. In his new book, which is uh, succinctly named, let me get it right, How to Get Your Kids Through Church Without Them Ending Up Hating God, it's Rob Parsons' book. If you can get through the title, the book is excellent, let me tell you. Very good indeed. Uh, good for parents and good for, for young people as well. In that book, Rob tells the story of, of a young man who goes to a church in North Carolina in uh, the United States. And this Sunday morning, he plucks up the courage to walk up to the uh, front door of this church. And that must have taken some doing. And he walks up to the church and he looks like something out of the 1960s. He's got long hair, he's, he's unshaven, he's, he's got an open neck shirt, earrings, uh, cut off jeans and he's not wearing any shoes. And as he approaches the church door, a middle-aged man says to him, Sorry sir, but you can't come into the house of God with no shoes on. So the man turns away and walks back along the path um, and as he is about halfway down that path. He feels a gentle tug on his arm. And there is the church founder, now elderly in years. And he beckons him back in. And as he does so, he bends down and with gnarled arthritic fingers, he unties his shoelaces, takes off his shoes, takes off his socks, puts them in the seat in front of him and beckons this man to come and sit with him in the back row of the church. And the middle-aged man has seen all this going on and he turns to the middle-aged man and he said... It's okay, he can sit by me. 
And I wonder where Jesus would have been. I think we know that Jesus would have been in that back row with that man. And the one key trait of the Pharisees, of which these disciples were so afraid on this particular night in John 20, the key trait that we learn of them is that they were judgmental. And Jesus, if we look at Jesus throughout the New Testament, has very little to say in terms of judgment for others, but almost wholly reserves his judgment for the Pharisees. Jesus had very, very little time for religion. In fact, I'd go as far as to say Jesus hated religion. Because what did religion do then as it does now? Is it stops people getting to Jesus Christ. That's what religion does. Why does it do that? This is why it does it. Because religion loves the rules. Whereas the gospel loves grace. By the gospel I mean the good news of Jesus Christ. Religion loves the rules and it it loves reminding people that they've broken the rules, whereas the gospel loves grace and and the forgiveness that comes with that grace. Peaceful hearts. We're not likely to have peaceful hearts if we have a judgmental attitude. Jesus says in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. Another way that that blocks the root of peace, I think, into our lives is is self-reliance. And and isn't the pervading theme of the day that if you do it with all your heart, you can do anything that you want to do. Isn't that the message that we hear? You can do it if you put your mind to it. And you know, to an extent, that may well be true. That may well be true. If you do it and put your mind to it, you can do whatever you want. But what about the famous athlete who said, I wish someone had told me that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. That's what a famous athlete said. Wish someone had told me that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. And you know, knowing us better than we know ourselves, Jesus understood how we're created. We're created to serve others. It doesn't come instinctively. My goodness, doesn't it? But we're created to serve others and put others first. Jesus says, doesn't he, love God with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. And what attitude should we have? He says we should be poor in spirit. And we may feel difficult handing those things over to God. To be poor in spirit, what does that mean? It means giving everything to God. It means in the hard times, handing things over to God. And that doesn't come easily to us at all. We want to take control. And we we sometimes think that, that perhaps Jesus doesn't understand Perhaps Jesus doesn't understand our anxieties. Perhaps he doesn't understand our suffering. Well, I want to take you back 70 hours from the Sunday night in John 20. And we can read about this in Matthew 26. So we're we're 70 hours back. We're Thursday night and we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They understand that the, the upper locked room where Jesus came to meet those disciples was the same place in which they held the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verse 37. And this is what, this is the account given of the garden. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
44, he says, So he left them, and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the very same thing. Three times Jesus asks for the cup to be taken from him. Three times he says, If there's any other way, if there's any other way, the Son says to the Father, for this to be done, take it from me, take this cup, Three times he says it. And God says no. God says to his only son, no, not my will be done, but yours. And isn't it true sometimes that God says no to our prayers and doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want him to? As a family this week, we've heard sad news from Christchurch, my cousin's sister-in-law was one of those who's still missing presumed dead she leaves behind a two-year-old and a three-year-old and I've no doubt that all over New Zealand and, and certainly members of my own family are asking this week why? why does God allow that to happen to us? sometimes God says no to our prayers and what are we to do we're to love him anyway and isn't that the the essence of faith trusting him and loving him when nothing seems to make an awful lot of sense there's a, a there's a little sign just near the place where uh, Jesus sweated blood as Luke tells us near the rock of agony as they call it and it says father I do not understand you, but I trust you. You see, Jesus understands our anxiety and he understands our suffering. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, as the sufferings of Christ flow into our lives, so through Christ our comfort overflows. And with it comes true and lasting peace. You see, what, what's happening in, in John 20 is that this is a room of transformation. At the beginning of those three verses, it's a room of fear. But into it bursts forth this reassuring presence of the risen Christ. And what does he say when he comes into that room? Does he say, listen, it's alright, there'll be there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more sadness. No, he says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And perhaps there's a little bit of uncalm and unrest in the room. Maybe they don't quite get it because he says again, peace be with you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the peace of God is, is not like the peace of the world, which is often dependent upon happiness. If, if I get this promotion, if I can get that car, if we can go on that holiday, if we can live in this village or live in this place, if I can get that job, if they live long enough, then we'll be happy. The peace of God is, is distinct from that. We know that because Jesus says in John 14, I give you my peace, but not as the world gives. This peace is dependent upon trust. The peace of God is dependent upon trust. 
And as George read out earlier, it's the, the peace of God that, that passes all understanding. We know that where two or three are gathered in his name, so his spirit is, is with us. And tonight we believe that the spirit of the risen Christ is with us, wanting to give new life, wanting people to have peace deep within their hearts. And I wonder where we stand tonight. The two questions, I suppose, that come out of these few verses are, one, do we recognize Jesus? And two, if we recognize him, are we willing to accept his peace? C.S. Lewis said, Die before you die, for there is no chance after. There is opportunity for us to accept Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. He died on the cross. We were privileged a month ago to go to Israel and go to some of the places where Jesus walked, the places where he lived and, and the places where he died and, and the areas that he showed himself to his disciples when he rose from the dead. He's a risen saviour. Jesus Christ is a risen saviour tonight. And what he longs to do in our hearts, as he did in the hearts of these disciples, is to transform. They were men of fear. We understand from Matthew that the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. But here they're transformed. It tells us that they were overjoyed. They were transformed to men of boldness. They understood that Jesus' return for them meant likely death as they were commissioned to spread the gospel to all nations. But yet they were overjoyed and they understood this deep sense of peace that Christ's return brings. And maybe tonight we just need to pray to God that he would open our hearts. I know I do every day. Lord, open my heart to your Spirit's leading. Maybe for the first time we need to do that. To come before him and say, Lord, please open my heart. I know as a believer and a believer of many years, every day I pray that prayer, Lord, would you open my heart? And I'm aware that there are mums here tonight who are running around with, with children and have so little time and think, how do I find time just to open my Bible and pray? And I believe God is saying to us tonight, it's okay. You're accepted. You're loved. There are young people who will be asking the question, what, what does God intend for me? What is my life? What is my life going to be about? What do I do with my future? What about those exams that I'm a little bit worried about? How do I get through that? And God is saying tonight, it's okay. Whether you pass or fail, you're accepted. There are those older people retired maybe and, and maybe asking the question what would my legacy be what does God want me to do now and I just believe God is saying to us tonight it's okay you're loved and you're accepted in Psalm 57 as David just maybe some of us tonight need to pray that prayer and just ask God to shelter us in the shadow of his wings Maybe some of us just need to do that tonight. Maybe some of us are in situations which are difficult at home, where there is anxiety. Maybe we're in situations where we don't know quite where we're going. And maybe we just need to ask God, Lord, please shelter me in the shadow of your wings. You see, God loves us immeasurably. It's something that I, I thank him for over the last three or four years, that he's made very real to me and 
just the knowledge that the risen Christ wants to, to have communion with you and I tonight and wants to meet with us and wants a real living relationship. And come anxiety and come difficulty and, and come pain and come even death, we will know then that we are sheltered in the shadow of his wings. Horatio Spafford was um, a well-known lawyer uh, in America in the 19th century. Um, and at the beginning of the 1870s, his business fell on difficult times. And so he decided that he and his wife and their uh, four daughters should go to Europe for a holiday. And he had some business to attend to in America. And so he sent uh, his wife Anna and their four daughters on ahead of him while he tended to this business. They were due to meet up with D.L. Moody in England for uh, a European holiday. And as they went across the Atlantic, the ship which was carrying them hit an iron sailing vessel and more than 200 lives were lost, including the four daughters of Horatia Spafford, aged 11, 9, 5 and 2. And Anna survived and on arriving in England, she sends word of her rescue back to Horatio in America and, and does it with two simple words that says, saved alone. And Horatio makes haste to meet with his wife over in England. And some midway across the Atlantic, the ship's captain calls him from below deck and says to him, this we believe is the area where your four daughters died. And there over the, the watery grave, he somehow manages to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he goes on, and this is a glorious verse. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, Horatius Spafford in his hour of, of darkness, in his hour, I suppose we would say, of greatest need, understood that his sins had been forgiven, that his greatest need, his greatest need was Jesus Christ. And his greatest way to thank Jesus Christ was by writing this great hymn of praise, even though he'd suffered unspeakable tragedy. I trust tonight we would know something of God's peace. And it's not just about God's peace, it's about his spirit. Because his spirit gives us the peace. If we know God's spirit, then we know that we've been saved by grace and that our saviour is Jesus Christ and that he has risen from the dead. And I trust from the bottom of my heart that we would know something of that risen saviour tonight.